you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. Feels strange to finally be here. Uh, it's been a, a long journey. I think it's been almost 10 months to the day since the first email I received from Ed Fodry. And in those 10 months, there's been lots of conversations, there's been all sorts of logistics, there's been more boxes than I can count uh, to unload. Uh, but we're here, and it's very exciting. I'm excited to be uh, starting out here together. I'm reminded in some ways of the words of the great theologian uh, Bilbo Baggins, uh, who says, it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Friends, I have no idea where we're going to end up, but I'm excited to find out together with you what God's going to do. So let's get started. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is God's word for you, his people, this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Adzor, and Adzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Genealogy is no one's favorite genre in the Bible. 
It's not a part that we usually go to for encouragement. Genealogies throughout the Old and New Testament, we kind of tend to skip or, or skim. Our eyes might kind of glaze over when we get to them because we are usually thinking that they read about as interestingly as tax records. But friends, there is an important theological truth at the heart of every genealogy in the Bible and especially the one we just read. And it's simply this. God is at work. God is at work. You're going to hear me say this a thousand and fourteen times. Uh, God is at work. And here's what I mean when I say that God is at work. It means that God is always present. God is always working. In every circumstance of your life, in every situation you encounter, in every breath you take, in every second of every day of every year, God is always at work. He is using everything to shape his people and to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't just show up sometimes if we pray really hard. God is always there. God is always, already working. And what genealogy shows us is that God is at work in history. There is a commentator that I'm going to quote a lot throughout this series because he wrote what I would call a beautiful commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And there's not many commentaries I would describe as beautiful And this guy's name is Frederick Dale Bruner. Uh, So you'll hear me talk about what Bruner says occasionally. This is a beautiful commentary. But thinking about how God is at work in history, what Bruner says is the Christ-promising God shaped Israel's history to keep faith with that promise. The Christ-promising God shaped Israel's history to keep faith with that promise. And that's really what the genealogy here in Matthew's gospel is about, how God has shaped history to keep this promise of a Christ, of a Savior for his people. And that's really amazing to think about how God has shaped history when we consider the actual list of names in front of us. This list has all kinds of people, but we're going to break them up into two categories so that they will be more manageable. We're going to look at the expected people that are on this list, and then we're going to look at the unexpected people who are on this list. Let's dive in. Who are the expected people that we would expect to see in the genealogy of Christ? Well, the first kind of expected person are the important people in Israel's history. We might call them the celebrities of the Old Testament. You see them in verse 2. You get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see them in verse 6. You get David and Solomon. These are the famous people. This is the hall of fame of the Old Testament. And what this reminds us is that God uses those whom he makes Great. God uses those that he gives worldly status and position and influence to. But friends, we totally get this. 
This is a non-controversial thought for us because we live in a society that has this profound celebrity culture. We have magazines that describe to us the dressing habits and the daily routines and changes to the schedule of celebrities. It's not hard for us to imagine that God uses the powerful and the influential and the wealthy. Many of us have a a view of history that you might call a great man or a great woman view of history. And that is that things kind of go along as normal until a great man or a great woman comes along and does something profound and important. We're not surprised to find great men listed in the genealogy of Christ. We're not surprised that God is using these towering figures of history. Nor are we surprised to find in this genealogy those who are righteous. Look at verses 10 and 11. In in 10 and 11, uh, Matthew mentions King Josiah. Josiah was a good king. He, He came to be the king of Judah after a period of long national decline. And one of the things that happened under Josiah's reign is they rediscovered the book of the law that apparently had been lost. And Josiah reads the law and he weeps and he mourns that that Israel has grieved their God. And he leads the nation in this national repentance. He was a righteous and a good king. Friends, what this reminds us of is that God uses those who follow him. God uses those who obey. In fact, one of the main reasons God gathers a people together, a a group together, is that their righteousness would be beautiful in the world. In Deuteronomy 4, it, it talks about how when Israel will keep the law, the nations around them will marvel at the character of their God. God uses those who are righteous and obedient. God also uses, and we see in this genealogy, insiders. And you see it in verses 7 to 11. This is a list of all or most of the kings of Judah. And they had various degrees of importance. They had various degrees of faithfulness. But all of these men were insiders. They were close to the action. They were in the room where it happens. And friends, all of these, the important, the righteous, and the insiders, you would expect to find in the genealogy of the most important man to ever live. But what we find and other places in this genealogy, are people that are entirely unexpected. Not only do we have important people in the genealogy, we have obscure people in the genealogy. In verse 13, we meet a man named Abiud. Do you know what the Bible says about Abiud? It says that his father's name was Zerubbabel, and his son's name was Eliakim. That is all we know about Abiud. We know nothing about Abiud. We understand from this that God uses even those that the world would consider insignificant. And friends, that's good news. Because honestly speaking, that is pretty much all of us. 
We are not people of great import and great significance in the world. I was struck by the fact as I was thinking about this passage this week that I didn't learn the name of my paternal great-grandfather until last year. And maybe even more interestingly, I had to look it up again preparing this sermon to make sure that I had it right. Thomas Gwinnup. Uh, on a side note, I also learned that I had a great, great, great uncle named Abednego Gwinnup, and that just seems awesome. Uh, <laughs> what a great name. This is a man that I would not exist without him. And I didn't know his name until I looked it up on an internet genealogy site. Friends, we live in a world that is terrified that we're going to be forgotten. We live in a culture where the worst thing that could happen to someone is that their life would be shown to be meaningless, at least by the metrics of the world. And so, so many of us are desperate to achieve something meaningful, to achieve something significant, to, to even achieve glory. Have you listened to a commencement address we tell kids when they graduate from preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and grad school, at every stage we tell them that their responsibility is now to go out and change the world. Do it. And I think part of the reason for that is that we're deeply afraid that we haven't done that. And we are putting our hopes and our fears of failure onto our children to go and be remembered. Go and do something Significant. It crushes our kids. But friends, there's good news. God is at work. God is at work. God is using everyone, even the Abiudes of the world, to accomplish his purposes. And what this means is that there are no invisible or insignificant or little people in the story that God is writing. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, there are no ordinary people. Every person you encounter is made in the image of God and will live for eternity. He said civilizations are ordinary. People are eternal. There are no ordinary people. And friends, because of that, we are free to not achieve glory. We are free to even be forgotten by the world because we are remembered by the one who never forgets. The genealogy of Jesus reminds us that even obscure people have a role in the story that God is writing. Also, we find in this genealogy people who are sinful, now, ultimately, everyone in this genealogy is sinful, but some of them uh, were really, really evil. In verse 10, we see Manasseh. And you read about Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21. Here are just a few of the things that 2 Kings 21 tells us about Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places in ancient Israel. The high places were altars where the Israelites would worship idols, uh, outside of the temple in Jerusalem. He was an evil man. 
He also began hiring and using sorcerers and fortune tellers and omen readers as he was trying to govern God's people, a practice that God had clearly forbidden in the Old Testament law. Not only that, he sacrificed his own son to a demon. This is a wicked man. In fact, 2 Kings 21 tells us that Manasseh was worse than the Canaanites, that God drove out of the land when he commanded his people under Joshua to take over this land he was giving them. Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. That's a quote from 2 Kings 21. Some scholars think that the prophet Isaiah may have actually been killed in Jerusalem under the reign of Manasseh. But friends, the point here is that God uses even the wicked to accomplish his purposes. The wicked and evildoers are not outside of God's rule and reign. And that's not to excuse evil. That's not to downplay evil. That's not to minimize evil. It's just to simply note that God is not wringing his hands over it. Evil and wickedness are not a problem for God. God is at work, even in the midst of evil. And we see a third group in this genealogy. We have uh, a third unexpected group. We have the obscure. We have the sinful We also find in this genealogy outsiders. In verses 1 to 6, we have four women listed. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, uh, but she's referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, women in the ancient world certainly lived more on the margins than men did. They were not typically in the room where it happened. But it's not just that these are women that is surprising in this genealogy. They are all Gentile women. They're not even Israelites. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. And Bathsheba is a Hittite. Moreover, some of these women, if not all of these women, are morally difficult. They all have stories in the scriptures that verge on the scandalous. And what's what's amazing is that women in the ancient world weren't typically included in a genealogy like this unless they were going to add dignity or purity to the bloodline. These don't do that in any meaningful sense. So we know that Matthew is willing to include women in his genealogy. Why does he pick these? Why these four mentioned by name? Why not Rebecca or Sarah or Rachel or Leah, the great kind of matriarchs of Israel? Why Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba? Bruner says this. He says, One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record and so finally to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. Friends, 
This passage is not a list. It's a sermon. It is a sermon that preaches the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this list, this passage reminds us that God's family is not only for the important and the righteous and the insiders. This passage reminds us that in Christ, obscure, sinful outsiders become the family of God. And Jesus is not ashamed of his family. Jesus is not ashamed of his family, this merry band of misfits that have been gathered together around him. The author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2.11 says it explicitly. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Martin Luther puts it beautifully. He says, Christ is not the kind of person who is ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Friends, Jesus is not grimacing or, or gagging or holding his nose or rolling his eyes as he considers us. Because membership And his family is not ultimately about our own awesomeness. It's not ultimately about our own righteousness. It's not ultimately about our own achievements. But the depth and the width of God's mercy. And so in Matthew's gospel, before we even encounter Jesus, we are learning that our lives are not defined by who we are and what we do, but by rather by who Christ is and what he has done. Friends, in Christ, we are not primarily people who do and achieve. We are people who are done for. In Christ, we are not primarily people who love. We are people who are loved by Christ. And that love ultimately takes Jesus to the cross, where the obscure are revealed of significance to God, where sinners are declared to be righteous, and where outsiders become beloved children. Friends, it's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we often feel insignificant, that we are often overwhelmed by our own sinfulness, and that we often feel like we're on the margins of the things that matter. We thank you that even in this genealogy, you have reminded us that we are part of your family, not because of how great we are or how righteous we are, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, drive that truth deep into our hearts. Let us cherish it. Let us live out of it. Help us to recognize we are your beloved children because you want us to be. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.